Thank you. So good to be with you tonight. And uh, wow, um, after hearing you all sing, it it reminded me. My mind went back um, not only to my childhood singing many of these hymns growing up at Lakewood Baptist Church, but uh, but also I was asked to be the guest speaker at Spring Baptist Church in. Uh, Cherokee country down in Ada, Oklahoma. They were celebrating their 150th anniversary and uh, I, I think they found out that I'm an eighth Cherokee and so they wanted to have at least somebody with a little bit of their blood in them, I guess. I wasn't exactly sure what the service was going to entail. They didn't have a bulletin, uh, but the place was full, probably about 200, maybe a little bit bigger than the group we have here. They sang with just a great sense of passion. Uh, every now and then someone would just stand and sing from the congregation. They would just stand up and start singing and the rest of the congregation would join in. Sometimes in the Cherokee language, most of the time in English. And one by one they would stand and start singing. Well, this went on for about 45 minutes or better and I kind of leaned over to the deacon and, uh, and I asked him, I said, how long, when will I know when I'm to go up? And he leaned over and he told me, he said, they will keep singing until you have the spirit. When you have the spirit, then you can stand and they will stop singing. And I thought, I could go on for another hour like this, you know. But I stood up right after that and uh, we, we had the message. And I got to thinking, uh, perhaps we could learn from that church of 150 years old what it means to worship. Uh, they, they were not growing tired and weary by the number of songs. They were getting stronger in their singing as they went on. And they wanted to make sure that the, whoever is going to deliver the word was filled with the spirit before he got up to speak. There's something about praise that empowers God's people to receive the word and respond to it. It's because you're convincing one another, I think, but you're also singing praise to the Lord. But there's, there's that horizontal dimension of worship that encourages the body, that says we're in this together and this we believe and this we will stand upon because we draw strength from one another. That's why it's so hard to worship by yourself. I know that you can have encounters and moments that we might identify as worship when we're out by ourselves, maybe in a beautiful field and we see a sunrise and a sunset. But as beautiful as nature can be as a reminder of what God has created for us to enjoy, there's nothing quite like coming in a room like this on a Sunday night and simply singing with all of your hearts until your voice is raw from singing because of what God has done. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, you know, we didn't have a special music, but all evening we have been singing special music. And it has touched the heart of the Lord and it's touched my heart and I know it's encouraged you as well. Well, thank you for coming back. Um, I thought it was pretty impressive when they said, well, now last week you were in the chapel, but this week we had to move to the big room. <laughs> and then I realized it was scaffold. <laughs> But it is a joy to be with you. We're going to go low tech today because I see my, my confidence monitor 
uh, up here uh, lacks confidence. And so we're going to go old school. I do have uh, a handout for you, and maybe we can take some notes. Last week we talked about what the definition of worship is based upon uh, some of my teachings and all. And uh, you might have your own definition, and I'm not saying that this one is superior to that which you believe worship is. But I think this kind of helps us get some principles in place. Uh, biblical worship is, and if you want to fill out that top part again from last week, biblical worship is the believer's sincere and spirit-empowered response to the redemptive action of God in Christ Jesus. Biblical worship is the believer's sincere and spirit-empowered response to the redemptive action of God in Christ Jesus. And last week we talked about how important it was for our worship to be driven by God's word. Now there are strong influences in worship. Our tradition shapes much of what we do. Our culture also shapes what we do. But it needs to be first and foremost driven by God's word. See, God's word needs to be that which we stand upon so that it can challenge cultural relevancy, so it can challenge past traditions. And those that align with God's word, we keep. Those that do not align with God's word, we say, we're willing to give this up. Now, I'm not talking about the difference between good and evil. I'm talking about the difference between good and better or good and best. When we move in alignment with God's word, I believe he always blesses that. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But last week we talked uh, about that one of the models of worship was from Isaiah 6. How many of y'all were here last week? And we went through that. Remember the first thing about uh, the Isaiah 6 model was that there was revelation where uh, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And then there was adoration when the seraphim were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Out of that adoration came confession because Isaiah realized that compared to what he was seeing, he said, woe is me, I'm undone. I can't live in this. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. When he saw God as he was, all of a sudden it revealed to himself that area that needed to be dealt with and it led to confession. And I think I shared last week how important confession is yet how seldom we ever really move through that because it, it's, it requires discipline. It takes time. It, it's not happy. It's not joyful necessarily. It's, it's doing business with God and we have all been there. Well, what takes place in Isaiah's life is out of that confession, he encounters that which does bring joy. He, he experiences expiation or forgiveness. And we quoted that verse together from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do you see how this is moving? There was revelation and then there was adoration. And adoration led to awareness of sin, which led to confession. Then the confession led to God's action of forgiveness and cleansing. And then from that, Isaiah was in a position to hear the Lord. And that's where we found proclamation. And out of proclamation, 
God, God spoke to Isaiah and said, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah then said what? Here am I, send me. And that's where we get the word dedication. So out of proclamation flows dedication. Then out of dedication, when God had Isaiah's heart, then he realized that God could move to Isaiah and say, this is what I want you to do. Go and tell this people. They're not gonna pay much attention to you. You're not gonna be a big success, but you be faithful. And Isaiah did that which God told him to do. Now I believe all of that goes back to that very first concept of worship, revelation. God revealed himself to Isaiah. And then we could ask the question, how does God reveal himself today? Well, he reveals himself through the word. Worship is biblically driven. If we want to see God, we must go to the source. And this book is not, we don't worship the book, but we do worship the author and that which the book reveals. And that's gonna be very important as we move forward. So worship is biblically driven. And let's make, our, make that our choice as God's people because it is a choice. You can run in many distractions and we'll talk about some uh, options that, that we can move in uh, that would challenge this. But what I want us to do is kind of really rest on the case made that our worship should be biblically driven. And it is a wonderful thing to be led by a pastor and have a staff that is consumed by that. The whole issue that the worship is biblical is something that's very important that you don't necessarily find everywhere you go, but you'll find it here. Uh, the next thing is that worship is for believers. Now this is an important part because sometimes we have this, this sense that you know, the worship is really for the lost. We, we want people to come and hear the gospel and respond and, and get saved. Yes, we do want that. That, that. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But worship is designed and uh, presented to us as an action of grace given by God to those he has redeemed that we might enter into his presence. The writer of Hebrews writes it this way. And there's, there's a reason why this is so important. You might say, well, well, I get that, I get that. But I think that when we understand how, how important it is that as believers that we worship, it affects our attitude as we approach worship. Here's what the writer of Hebrews uh, says in Hebrews 10. As a matter of fact, the first uh, 10 chapters really deal with this whole issue about every, the, the liturgical practice of the Levitical order and everything that had to be done in order to move people into acceptable worship. But all of it was kind of uh, temporary and it didn't have the holistic impact that it needed to have until Christ came and that changed everything. And it says in uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19 is where I'll start, but really it, it, it goes back to verse 10 where it says, by which we're sanctified through the suffering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ perfected the sacrificial system that God had laid out for man to have acceptable worship or relationship with the Father. 
And then it goes on to say that having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Picture this now. Kind of picture this as almost a courtroom of going in that you don't have access to approach the throne. Uh, and But something had to happen on our behalf to give us that privilege. It says, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. In other words, the veil is now open. And having a high priest over the house of God, who is that high priest? It's Jesus Christ now. That has changed everything. Then let us draw near with a, here's that word again, true heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some, as you see the day approaching. Now, why, why is that so critical? Without Christ, we have no access to the throne of God. And so our gathering has no merit. It has certainly no eternal uh, significance. It might have temporal significance. It might make us feel good. But do you realize that when we gather together as his body and we are worshiping him, I don't fully understand this because it, this is a very transcendent thought to a timeless God, to an eternal God, to an omniscient and omnipotent God. It's hard to fully comprehend how our worship somehow is grafted into the eternal worship of God around the throne. But yet this is what is pouring out of his word. In other words, what we do together as God's people is really important. And it was so important that God said, I've got to provide a different offering for my people if they're going to enter into my presence. There's got to be, and his plan formed from the beginning of time was to send his son to take the place of an inadequate offering for an adequate offering, a better offering. I believe that the word better is used in the book of Hebrews 11 times, just constantly for a better way, a more perfect way. And so worship is for believers because it's rooted in a covenant relationship God has made with his people. Now we probably have maybe some attorneys or former attorneys that are in this room. And you know how contracts are drawn up and how they are activated because it requires uh, certain conditions that the condition of the recipient has his conditions and the, re and the condition of the grantor of the covenant. But on this case, God said, I'm going to purchase what this individual cannot acquire that I, may buy, that I may buy that on his behalf so that the covenant can be activated or rectified so that it cannot be broken by his inactivity of, or, but it's gonna be developed as a, uh, because I'm going to transform that life into a relationship with me grafted. He's one of my family members now and as a result, he has access or she has access into my very presence. That is something to celebrate. 
we have the right as his heirs, as his children, to come before the throne of God, no longer the God of wrath, but the Abba Father that says, come and dine with me. Let me spend time. Does that not affect how our attitude should be when we enter into the presence of the Lord as we gather together? Worship is for believers. That's why we should not be apathetic or passive with our worship, but we should pour ourselves into it because it is the right that we have and the privilege that we have because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So let us not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. I believe that if our people understood just how important worship truly is, that you would have to have more services going on than what you have. Now, you're, you're a busy church. Was it three worship services or four counting on Sunday night? And, and <clears throat> but there is still much more work to be done. And we have the right and the privilege to worship. Well, so worship is for believers, but worship also needs to be sincere. Now, now no, nothing is more devastating to worship than pride. When we come in with the attitude that, well, I sure hope that somebody impresses me today. Because uh, if, if I'm impressed, then I might keep coming back. You remember last week we talked about playing church. That's what pride does. Well, sincere worship uh, is, is something that is blessed and cherished by our Lord. Now, there's a couple of, of case studies I want us to consider. One is during the reign of Jeroboam in which... Uh, the northern tribe had made some great strides. There was, for the most part, peace in the land. They had made some uh, interesting uh, uh, trade packs with neighboring tribes, and so money was pouring in. Uh, the reign of Jeroboam was one of great wealth and uh, influence. Um, the Levitical order, was they were functioning properly. The worship was one that was high and holy. They... They would uh, have their feast days exactly according to Levitical law. Uh, they would cross every T and dot every I. And uh, the people sang, the people gave, the offerings were uh, sacrificed in a proper way. And you would think that God would be very pleased with all of this. But through his prophet Amos, we find these words in Amos 5.21. And uh, where we find that God speaking through his prophet said, take away your uh, music, it's noise to my ears. Take away your offerings, for they stink, because there is injustice in the land, and your hearts are far from me. In other words, the attitude was not right, and that uh, that that uh, made the worship null and void. God was not going to receive it. The worship was a farce. And so you think about here; they were doing everything right, and God was not accepting their worship. Now, if you fast forward in the reign of Hezekiah, now Hezekiah came to the throne after Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings that we find in Scripture. He, he closed the doors of the temple. He, uh, he offered incense to the gods of Damascus. He profaned the temple. Uh, he, uh, he abandoned the, the work that was supposed to be taking place in the temple. He actually sacrificed some of his own family members to the altar of Moloch. And all these things that were going on during the reign of Ahaz. Well, Hezekiah comes to the throne 
The chronicler says of Hezekiah that he had a heart for God second only to David. Now, the first thing that Hezekiah does, and we find this in Second uh, Chronicles 29 through 31, we find that Hezekiah comes to the throne and he starts to uh, uh, restore the temple. Now, Passover was coming up. That's supposed to take place in the first month of the year. But as it turns out, Hezekiah doesn't have things in place for Passover to take place. And so we have to, you know, he had to, the Levitical order had to go through purification. Uh, the priests had, been, had to be gathered. They had to get information out because he was sending out messengers to all the tribes, including Ephraim and Manasseh, to come together to celebrate Passover. And so he just decided, I'm just going to move the date. Move the date of Passover? That'd be like moving uh, Christmas because we didn't get our shopping done. All right, so look, we'll just have Christmas in April. How would that go over in your house? Probably wouldn't go over very well, right? Well, you can imagine what uh, may have been taking place there. Well, so they moved the day to Passover. Well, the second thing that they did was that when the offering started coming in, that they didn't have enough priests to handle the animals. And only the priests could lay hands on the animal, uh, slay the the beast and then drain the blood and all that kind of stuff. So he, he told the Levites, you join in and you uh, participate in this. Well, the Levites weren't separated. I'm in the choir, but I'm not touching animals, all right? I'm a Sunday school teacher, but I'm not touching animals. Well, he broke that law. That was another law that Hezekiah broke. The third law was that as the offerings came in, they basically said, we have too much as it is, quit giving. Now, I don't know when the last time you have heard that from your pastor at this church, but probably has not been in recent times anyway. Well, not yet. <laughs> and, uh, and then lastly, Passover is supposed to last for a week, seven days, and Hezekiah continued it for 14. So he doubled the time. You would have thought that God would have really been upset with Hezekiah. I mean, God had laid down to Moses, here's how Passover is going to be celebrated, and Hezekiah breaks every rule in the book. But yet we find in, uh, first, in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 27, that the Levites offered their offerings and their prayers, and it said that it reached the very heavens. In other words, it touched the heart of God. Jeroboam did everything right, and God said, I'll not have it. Hezekiah did everything wrong and God said, I'm going to bless that and I'm going to bring unity to the people. Even Ephraim and Manasseh joined in together and there was unity of north and south for a brief moment in history. And you'd think that God would have been angry at, well, what is the only offering that God never refuses? It's the offering of a contrite heart. When your heart is real and sincere before God, he will always receive that and bless that. Sincerity is important as we worship. And there is a difference between sincerity and passion. And we get those two words confused a lot. I'm passionate about OU football and UGA football. So I was split yesterday right down the middle on that. I'm passionate about that. But sometimes my passions aren't in alignment with where my life needs to be poured out. That happens through a sincere worship encounter with God with my heart. And when I am pouring myself into that, that's where there's sincerity and that's where 
passion is all of a sudden changed. It's not based upon what I get out of the service, but it's rather what I pour into it. Worship needs to be sincere. Okay, so the next thing is that worship is spirit-empowered. Now, we, we're Baptists, and we can uh, probably call out all the various things that the Holy Spirit does to help bring uh, empowerment to our worship. But I wanted us to take a look at a couple of things in particular. First, we know that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, right? I mean, there will be times even when uh, we least expect it that God will bring to memory something that has been unconfessed that we need to get right before God. And so hopefully we are, are, that we move according to that prompting, confess the sin, receive the forgiveness, and move on. But the Holy Spirit does so much more than simply convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit does one thing that is a beautiful thing every Sunday. And I may have mentioned this last week, so forgive me if I get a little bit redundant here, but it's so important, is that God takes, or the Holy Spirit can take something that is common and make it uncommon in his application among the people. And so when, um, when Brother Wayne prepares a message, his message isn't given in such a way that I... I'm hoping that this message is going to touch this person or that person or this person. If I know Wayne Wright, and I think that I do, when he preaches the word, it's an offering to the Lord. And here is the offering. Take it and apply it through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes that message, which is common, and makes it uncommon in its application. In other words, that the, the sermon might say something completely different to different individuals. There have been times when uh, I've stood at the back and have preached, and Wayne has been the same way, and others that I know. Matter of fact, about every pastor I know, this has happened to them, where they would preach a message and someone would come and say, this is what your message said to my heart. And nowhere was it in the outline or uh, on the page, but yet the Holy Spirit took that work and applied it to that life to touch a life in a significant way. In other words, the miracle of the loaves and fishes happened every Sunday at First Baptist Church. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate. That's why it's so important that we approach worship with the right attitude because God can speak through any willing servant and touch a life. And I, I would venture to say that I don't believe I've ever heard a bad sermon. Now, I've been a bad listener, but I don't think I've ever heard a bad sermon because I believe that God can take even the weakest vessels, and I would be one of those, and can use a vessel in such a way to touch lives for his kingdom. And so... Worship is spirit-empowered. But the last thing I want to remind you of what the Holy Spirit does, according to 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit will always make Jesus the whole point of everything. The Holy Spirit manifests Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does not bring attention to himself, but brings attention to Christ. I don't understand. That's a very numinous statement. I realize that. And I can't explain it in ways in which I could even uh, comprehend it. But this I know is that we can trust the work of the Holy Spirit because it'll always magnify Christ and not draw attention to itself. And that's why when you see things that 
um, bring unusual attention, uh, things that are kind of out of the realm of, uh, of how God works through his word. It's okay to test that spirit, and it's okay to, uh, but, any, but a spirit that is not going to testify of Christ is a spirit that does not need to be in this room. Okay? The Holy Spirit, according to the word, not according to cultural influence or tradition, the Holy Spirit always brings attention to Christ, not himself. So, spirit-empowered. Now, worship, like, and, and we, we sang of this tonight, worship tells the story of redemption. Worship tells the story of redemption. Have you ever thought about how um, worship styles are uh, visited through God's word? It, it, it is it's quite fascinating because we find in Genesis, we find this unusual uh, worship encounter that Melchizedek had with Abraham. And you remember there was a tie that was presented. They drank from a cup and they shared an offering and there was some edification that went back and forth. And that's basically all we hear. Later, we discover that Abraham is, is uh, building uh, some, piling some rocks and, and uh, building a kind of a makeshift altar and he and his family are gathering and they're worshiping. There's even a time in which he actually, under the commandment of God, is, is presenting his son on an altar which God is going to teach a bigger message and holds the arm back and, and pro provides a ram instead. And we know that story quite well. Uh, but worship was patriarchal led. It was the, the, the leader of the family, the household, directed worship. But we find later on in the, the worship of Moses that worship became uh, institutionalized in a little bit of a different manner, of which all of a sudden now we have uh, a lot of symbolic action taking place, the construction of the tabernacle, uh, the, the tent, and the, the curtains, and the veils, and the actions of the priests, and the slaying of the animal, the draining of the blood, the sprinkling uh, upon the holy seat, and uh, for the most part, this was worship that was somewhat observed and limited in participation by the people when you really think about it. Because basically, they were trusting the worship of the priests to be that which was going to atone for their sins. And so they would watch it taken place, but were not engaged fully into the worship uh, liturgy. Well, we find later that the worship of David was quite a bit different as they uh, had the tent of meeting at Shiloh and there was not only congregational singing, there was lament. There were actually recitation of, of psalms that would be written by David and by Asaph and by other musicians that would simply cry out to God, even, even challenge God at times. My God, why have you forsaken us? It's kind of like, why are you blessing the people around us that are your enemies and, and we feel like you have abandoned us? They were so honest with their worship of God. You know, there's something about that. Now, I haven't, I haven't discovered a Baptist church that, that went through lament very much, but we do go through it from time to time. I remember 911, and I remember the, the destruction of the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, in which I lost six very close friends that were killed in that, that building. 
And I, I look back at that day and I remember the lament that went on in the life of God's people as we worship together. And I, I, I remember singing how firm a foundation with a complete different set of eyes than perhaps I'd ever sung it before. And so there's a time for us to be honest and open with God and say, this is our, man, we're crying out to you, God. Do a work that only you can do. We gotta put our trust in some, something because everything else around us is given way. We gotta put our trust in the foundation of the Lord. And so the worship of David was very honest and very uh, spirited. Well, the worship of Solomon was different as the construction of the temple, the destruction of the temple. We see the diaspora, uh, the spreading of uh, the Jewish community, and they would gather together in smaller groups, maybe giving rise to what we know now as the synagogue. And out of that, later on, we find the Christian church uh, worshiping in some of the similar manners, which is very different. And they, their worship was centered around the cup and the bread. And we even have a picture of worship for the future in Revelation uh, when they're gathered around the throne. But it's, it's, it's very interesting about all those worship services. They are vastly different in style, vastly different. But yet they all share one common central theme. And that is the theme we find from John the Revelator when he says, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and blessing and power forever and ever, amen. Worthy is the lamb. Worship is centered over the story of redemption. And so style does have a place. What we sang tonight, embrace, I could connect with every song that we were singing. They were a little bit high, Barry, but I was doing my best. But I could connect with that because I, I can share in that story, but I can go to a contemporary service and also I can, I can sing some of the songs of redemption there that stir my heart in the same manner. It's not so much the style as much as it is, what is the message? And what is really important is that as we look at style, that we don't overcook it, but that we don't undercook it as well. What I mean by this is that the style of worship, whether it was at Spring Baptist Church in, outside of Ada, Oklahoma with the 200 Cherokees gathering around that 150th anniversary, or whether it's the uh, 11 o'clock service in the new facility, which is quite amazing, I might add, or whether it's in here or in the chapel, it's really important to remember this, that the purpose of the style is to help us engage that story of redemption so that we can sing it for all eternity. Now, we're going to be singing different songs. But, but I, I go back to that Fanny Crosby song because I never get tired of singing about the story. And I learn all sorts of different styles of music and so forth, but the message has got to be the same. I love to tell the story. Tis pleasant to repeat. It seems each time I tell it, more what? Wonderfully sweet. And when in scenes of glory we what? Sing the new, new song will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. What wondrous love is this. Redemption story. <clears throat> 
Worship tells the story of redemption. Whatever the style is, let it be about redemption. And then we know that worship is an encounter with God. We talked about that with uh, Isaiah's encounter that he had, but it's also that which he would have with us. It's a vertical encounter. It's a horizontal encounter, and it's an outward encounter. The, the verticality of this is that God starts with us. He moves to us to reveal himself. We then respond with adoration. He moves back to us to realize, help us realize that we are not where we need to be in our walk with him. All of a sudden, we, in acts of confession, we move back to him by saying, I confess my sin. He moves back towards us to bless us with expiation and forgiveness of sin. Then we're in a position by which we can what? Hear the word. And God proclaims the word to us, to our hearts. We respond with dedication, blind obedience. Then God responds back to us and says, this is what I want you to do with that message. Now go touch a life and make a difference. That's where the outward dimension takes place in our worship. So worship has this incredible, it's an incredible encounter with God that required the sacrifice of his son for God to make it happen on our behalf. And that means that worship is centered in Jesus Christ. And this is our last point for tonight. Worship is centered in Jesus Christ. Now, we find a wonderful uh, declaration that takes place. This encounter that the woman at the well had with Jesus in John chapter 4. And you know the story well. And we... we uh, can spend time over the, the whole issue of living water and so forth. But what's interesting is that the lady at the the woman at the well makes a comment where she kind of transitions the conversation, says, we worship here in this mountain, but you men say, or the Jews say, that this is the place of worship, Jerusalem, the temple. So who's right? Jerusalem, the temple, or Mount Gerizim, our temple? Now, between the two edifices, uh, who's to say which one was the most oppressive? Who had the best building? Who knows? Herod's second temple was pretty impressive, but so was the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. It was pretty impressive too. The worship of Gerizim, uh, John MacArthur called it uh, heat without light, enthusiastic heresy. In other words, the, the Samaritans, if, if we, we understand who the Samaritans were, they were... Uh, the people that were, for the most part, they were left behind uh, and they were the remnant at, at the Babylonian exile that took place. And so when they came back, they had, they had noticed that many of those that were left behind had intermingled, intermarried with various neighboring tribes and kind of sold out their bloodline. And so they kind of developed their own center of religiosity. Uh, it wasn't based on uh, centered in the, the Torah to the level that Jewish worship was, but they would borrow some tenets from the Torah uh, because they didn't have anyone to guide them or to teach or give instruction. And so basically they were left on their own to kind of develop their own worship experience and was highly charged. As a matter of fact, historians uh, have written about how they would actually cut themselves in order to create more of a, of a frenzy that would take place in the worship. So if you're talking about passion and excitement and thrill, man, you could find it at Mount Gerizim. Now, Jesus said, woman, it's not the mountain. 
nor is it Jerusalem. For really what matters, what's going to please the Father is when we worship spirit and truth. Now, now why did he, I understand why he would condemn Mount Gerizim, but because it was a worship that was centered on and driven entirely out of cultural relevancy. Now, that, that's, a, that's an interesting word. Cultural relevancy. They made their worship fit who they were. And they did it really well. They probably had great attendance. But we find that Jesus didn't have a whole lot of good, he didn't speak very well of the worship in Jerusalem either. Matter of fact, he called the worship leaders open sepulchers, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. In other words, what they were pushing was cold, barren, lifeless, dead orthodoxy that was unapproachable by the people. And so it was lifeless dead. So you had one, you had the cultural, you had the influence of the culture. On the other, you had the influence of their traditions. And you were not going to break into either one. And as a result, Jesus said, neither are acceptable to the Father. But what is going to please the Father is worship that is centered in two things. And what are those two things? Spirit and in truth. And that conjunction is very important. Because we're talking about that which is a realm, a sphere, if you would. Spirit and truth is in there, in that realm. Anything other than that is not to be placed in there. Now, spirit, we have the word pneuma, and this is where um, there's much debate uh, among theologians about what was being meant by spirit and truth. Um, we had a common professor, Gerald Borchard, that, that talked about how that is really the, the full engagement of the person in worship, and I totally believe that. Uh, but I also supported a, an, another thought that he challenged me on in my dissertation that dealt with, and I believe that he's also referring to the Holy Spirit because he used some prophetic language, the hour has come and is now when uh, worship that pleases the Father will be governed in spirit and in truth. And so whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But I do believe this, that the spiritual side of this, this realm, is that this is a spiritual uh, opportunity for God's people to engage with, with the Father through a heart that has been changed by Christ. And the other was in the word truth. And in that, that word, we find the, the Greek word aletheia. Aletheia is an interesting word because in the Greek, the word truth has four meanings depending on the context. We find truth that, it, that is uh, something that's opposite of a lie. This is something truthful. This is a lie. There's also the context of that which is uh, sincere or doesn't have any mixture of anything else in it. This is true, like true tempered steel. There's, there's not, nothing else added into this. There's also the word truth as it means uh, something that is applied to a correct teaching or saying or doctrine. But the last context of the word truth, which I believe is where this lies, and bear with me as we go through the weeds of this because it's very important, is that truth, the word aletheia, means truth as it is in the context of that which reveals 
something or someone. Now, the reason why we believe and know that this is what we're talking about is that John's language is used the same way as when he uses it early in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In other words, he's revealing himself as access to the Father. Not a priest in Jerusalem. Not a high and holy man on Mount Gerizim. But himself, this is how you approach the Father, through me. That is very important. Because we find later when the woman at the well says this, she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he will show us all things. And what was it that Jesus said to the woman at the well? It is I that stands before thee, revealing himself as Messiah to the woman at the well of questionable conduct and character. He is showing his authority to someone that you would say, of all the people that would deserve this kind of a conversation, certainly it can't be this. But Jesus talked about, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that... It's amazing the dialogue that Jesus has with the people that are so surprising. But yet we find that in this context, Jesus says, I am the access, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. And if you're going to worship the Father in spirit, you've got to worship the Father in me. And so that's why our worship is all about Christ, centered in him. Jesus said it this way, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself. And of course, he's, I believe he's referring to the cross, but I believe also in a worship context, I believe he is the object and the affection and the attention of our worship so that people will be drawn to him. So Jesus Christ is our focus on worship. And it's when we move down other avenues and other trails, trying to maybe look cool to the culture or maybe to appease lobby groups, that we find ourselves kind of going down some roads that may be good, but they're never best. Our best track is always, first and foremost, that everything we do, it must reveal Jesus Christ and keep him central. And when we do this, then God will guide us in such a way that will bring honor to the Son and will bless the people. I don't, <clears throat> I'm seldom in a worship setting in which I don't leave blessed because of what God has done, not because of what I've done. It hasn't been based on my participation. It's been based on his participation on my behalf. And he draws me closer to him. And he reveals to me out of his word things that I need to know by which I can align my life in closer proximity to his revealed word. And my prayer for us even tonight is that going forward as we worship him, that we come in with an attitude of worship that says, it really isn't about me as the song says, but it's about Christ and seeing him lifted up and exalted that he might draw us closer to him. Whether we're singing some of the great songs that we sang tonight, What Wondrous Love Is This, 
or if we're singing the, the latest Crowder piece, which is too high for me to sing also. <laughs> all I know is that let's keep him central in all that we do, that he might get the glory and the honor in all that we do, because we're going to be doing this for all eternity. And thank God for it. Thank God for it. Well, let's go, Lord, in prayer as we close. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship, for what you did for us on Calvary by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we might receive that gift and be able to move in a relationship with you, which would allow us the privilege to worship you, not just for now as we gather as your people, but for all eternity. Lord, we thank you. Now, Lord, we know that to worship you is to be responsive. And Lord, all worship from your word reveals that there's an outward dimension that calls us to engage the world without knowledge of your Savior. So God, help us as we worship to hear the voice call to us, what am I to do with this message? Lord, do a work that only you can get credit for. And Lord, even move among us tonight in Christ's name.